about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Luke 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know about the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with, with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. Uh, Last Sunday was Easter Sunday. Uh, It was, as it should be, I think a great day. Uh, I saw many of you there. Uh, I just thought 
it's just a wonderful celebration, Easter. Um, it's, it's a day full of joy as we celebrate, of course, Jesus' resurrection from the dead and how the news came to the disciples that first Easter morning. Easter is good news. We've got to be careful, though, that we don't assume too quickly that we understand exactly why and how Easter is good news. It's easy to rush on without really thinking through what Easter actually means. Uh, when we read the Gospel accounts, though, one of the things that, that, that stands out is, is actually, at the first Easter, it wasn't obvious straight away to the disciples what it meant. It's very much like that in the story we just read. We find them wondering and trying to make sense of it and confused. This week and next week, therefore, we're pausing over the Easter story in Luke. I've got some slides. Um, pausing over the Easter story, taking time to read the end of Luke's gospel and reflect on what Easter means. When the part of the chapter that we're reading today, uh, we hear about a journey that two of the disciples make. But the journey they make literally, it matches a journey that they make internally as they move from despair and confusion to understanding and excitement. And Luke gives this story a surprising amount of space. Surprising because space is tight in the Gospels. Um, the reason for that is papyrus scrolls in those days were a standard size um, if you didn't want them to be really expensive. So you could get a longer scroll, but it made it really expensive. So if you wanted a document that could be produced relatively cheaply, uh, you needed to kind of keep them down to length. And that, that's what happened with the Gospels, we think. But Luke gives quite a lot of space to this story. He lets the story unfold slowly so that we can see how the disciples get to this new understanding. I think that's really interesting. And I think Luke does this because he knows that we need to make a journey as well. We, like the disciples, need to come to grips with what has happened and what that means. And that doesn't just happen in an instant. What it means takes time to sink in. Uh, and the way this story unfolds, what it does is it draws us to think about what we may not quite have understood about what has happened. So, come with me as we travel with these two disciples uh, and we see how their eyes are opened on this journey. Uh, we're going to, this is a little overview, not much of an overview, but it, it, it's a bit of one. We're going to first walk through the story and then we're going to spend some time thinking about how we might respond to it. Well, first then, let's think about this story. We pick up the story later on the day that the women went to the tomb and found it empty. This is still Easter day, the first day. And the disciples have now had several hours, it seems, of confusion. And two of them decide to leave Jerusalem and walk to a town called Emmaus, possibly about three hours' walk away from Jerusalem. Now, we don't know exactly why they went. It could be any number of things. Uh, it could be worries about where to stay. It could be family needs. It could be 
fear of the authorities. The realities of life, of of food and bed and shelter, they were still there uh, in this time. But the decision to leave Jerusalem does seem like a bit of a failure. Jerusalem was where the victory was supposed to happen. It was where Jesus' work was supposed to come to a climax, and now they're leaving and it feels like defeat. As they go along, we'll see that these guys were really filled with disappointment. They go along discussing what had happened. Luke actually uses lots of different words for their conversation, and the impression is of an earnest, energetic discussion. They're absorbed in what had happened, but they're also quite confused. And then in the midst of this, it says, verse 15, Jesus came up. Jesus himself came up and walked with them. Wow. This is the first time Jesus appears in Luke's gospel after his death. And he just walks, he comes up, walking along with them. But strangely, it says they were kept from recognizing him. We aren't told exactly why they couldn't recognize Jesus. It's, it's, it's weird. But I think it has something to do with their lack of understanding. There is something they need to understand before they're going to be able to see him. Well, Jesus then asks them what they're talking about, and their response reveals their disappointment. Have a look with me from verse 17. Jesus asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. I reckon this is some first-rate trolling from Jesus. This is just gaslighting. Well, what, oh, what things are those? Yeah. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. You can feel them just, there's this release of what they want to say. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers, handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him, but we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's now the third day since all this took place. Can you hear the raw disappointment in these words? We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. There's confusion here too, right? They're kind of saying, there's no doubt that he was a prophet. You you cannot get us to doubt that. Mighty in word and deed before God and the people. That was obvious. This guy was incredible. It seemed like for sure he was the one. He was the Messiah. He had to be. To understand these reactions, we need to know what's going on, what these hopes are about. What does Cleopas mean when he talks about the one who is going to redeem Israel? Now, many of us might be familiar with this, but not all of us will. So let me just explain it briefly. In briefest terms, the answer has to do with the Bible on the one hand and the political situation Israel was in on the other. On the one hand, the Bible tells a story of how God made a commitment that Israel would be the hope of the world, that through Israel, life and goodness would flow into the world after it was broken and messed up. But as the story of the Old Testament goes on, Israel totally failed to live up to that calling. 
It's, uh, it's a disaster, frankly. And yet, the hope never dies. Those promises endure. And at the end of the Old Testament, those promises are still hanging. There's this hope that Israel will be the light of the world. And those hopes have become bound up with a figure, a king who will come, who will be, in Hebrew, a Mashiach, an anointed one. Messiah is the uh, translation of the Hebrew word. So there's this hope, there's this promise. That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, in Cleopas's day, in Jesus' day, Israel was in a disastrous political situation. After the point that the Old Testament ends, our Old Testament ends, Israel was conquered by one after another empire. First the Greeks, then the Seleucids, and then the Romans. And in Cleopas's day, the Romans are in charge, and, and Israel is under Roman rule with very little independence and a lot of poverty. So when Cleopas says that they had hoped that Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel, this is what he's talking about. They had hoped that Jesus would be the one through whom the promises would be fulfilled. Maybe they, won't, they weren't ter- totally clear what that would look like, but you would have forgiven them if they'd assumed that what that would mean was Rome being kicked out and Israel rising again as a world power. But that didn't happen at all. Not, not at all. Instead of winning, Jesus got killed by the Romans. And now Cleopas goes on. They aren't even able to just move on because they've heard all these weird reports. Verse 22, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. What's that about? They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. That's really weird. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found that just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. You get that sense, I think, that this is all just overwhelming for these guys. They have no idea what to make of it. They definitely can't yet square their hopes that Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel with these weird reports about nobody and angels. They can't square them because there is something that they have not understood. Jesus' response, which follows in verse 25, is really the center of the story. Have a look at it there. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus responds, and remember, they don't yet know that it's Jesus. It's just this stranger. He responds by telling them they've never properly understood the Bible. They've never properly understood the promises that their hopes are built on. And what they haven't understood is it comes down to one central critical thought. That the Messiah had to suffer and then enter his glory. And then Jesus, he takes them to school, taking them through the Old Testament, interpreting it, and showing how this thought 
makes the whole thing fit together in ways they'd never seen. Man, wouldn't it have been great to be there for that lesson? To have Jesus teach the Bible to you. Imagine, imagine having Mozart talk you through the Requiem without even knowing it was him. That, that's probably not everybody's cup of tea. I see Sam laughing. Imagine, you like that? Good. Okay, good man. Imagine having Roger Federer teach you how to do a backhand without knowing who it was. And it would it'd be better than that, I think. There's an important lesson about the Bible here that we'll come back to. For now, though, let's just finish the story because the disciples still haven't quite got where they need to get to. While this lesson is still underway, they're still hearing about how all this works, they get to where they think is their destination. In verse 28, they approach the village and Jesus makes it seem like he's going on. I don't know, maybe he pretended. Oh, just, just keep him going. You know, oh, look at the mountains. I don't know. And they, they get him to stay. So captivated are they by his, this stranger's explanations. And they get to the evening meal and then something amazing happens. Look at it. When he was at the table with them, he took bread. This is Jesus. And he gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened. And they, rec- they recognised him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? As Jesus breaks the bread and, and starts to give it to them, suddenly they, they recognize him. Their eyes were opened and then, he, and then he's gone. We don't know how. There's no puff of smoke or anything. He's just not visible anymore. I have, we have a question time in a bit, you can ask me. I don't really have anything more to say about that. He just, they saw him and then he wasn't there. Weird. But his work is done, it seems. They've got it. They've, they've seen him. They've understood what they needed to understand. Why was it when he broke the bread, though? That's interesting, isn't it? This action is almost exactly like what Jesus did at the Last Supper back in chapter 22 when he broke the bread and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body given for you. The thing is though, these two disciples probably weren't there at the Last Supper because they're not actually members of the 12 12 main disciples. Still, they could easily have heard about this moment from others and More than that, I actually don't think this action was just done for these two, Cleopas and his wife or his friend or whoever it was. I think this action was meant for others as well. In fact, for everyone who read Luke's Gospel, I think those reading the Gospel are meant to make a connection with the Last Supper. And the reason is that the breaking of the bread, it makes the same point that Jesus has just been teaching these two disciples along the road. The Messiah had to suffer. The Messiah had to suffer. Jesus' body had to be given up to death in order to be given to others for life. The breaking of the bread is a reminder that this one who is now so powerfully alive is the same one who died. 
You see, these two disciples have had their eyes open, not just to recognize Jesus, but also to understand what they hadn't understood, that the Messiah had to suffer. The scriptures have been opened to them as well as their eyes, and their hearts burned within them. The story ends with them going back and sharing what had happened with the 11 who were there at the Last Supper and who in the meantime have news of their own. It's actually an amazing anticlimax. These two, they rush back to Jerusalem, probably dangerous because now it's, it's probably kind of night and they probably arrive quite late. And they burst in with this news and before they can even give them the news, the 11 say, hey, it's true, he's alive, we just saw him. And they're like, ah. But then they share their news. Yes, we know. They tell them what had happened on the way and how Jesus, had, how they, how Jesus was recognized by them when he, when he broke the bread. I said it tells this story at some length. And he does tell it at length. Let's just notice that again. It gets a lot more space than any of the other resurrection accounts in his gospel. He lets us see how the disciples come to a new understanding because he knows that we too need to make the same journey. We, like the disciples, need the reality of Easter to sink in and what it means to dawn on us. Okay, so what might we we learn from taking this journey today? Well, there are many things we could say, but I want to draw our attention to three things. Three things we learn from this journey, and especially from Jesus' words in verses 25 and 26, where he tells them that the Messiah had to suffer and then enter his glory. We learn something about the Bible, we learn something about ourselves, and we learn something about Jesus. First, something about the Bible. I said before that there was something important to learn from the way Jesus explained to the disciples how the Scriptures spoke of him. You see, the mere fact that this moment happened tells us something incredibly valuable. It tells us that the Bible is a unity. It can be understood as one book. It's very easy, actually, to assume that that's not the case. If you've been coming to church for a while, you may have forgotten this, but It's true, actually. The Old Testament is made up of many books. It's many different books written by many people over a large span of time, hundreds of years. And and those books often give evidence of kind of having underlying sources and extensive editing and changing over the years. It's very diverse as a piece of literature, the Old Testament. And it's diverse in its ideas, too. Very different things are said at different Moments. There are different takes on stories, different angles on theological and moral questions. So there's actually no reason on the surface or even a fair bit under the surface to assume that the Old Testament is a unity. It could just be a bunch of random things that have been brought together kind of artificially. And a lot of people treat it that way. But Jesus shows the disciples that the scriptures are a unity because he explains to them, we're told, what was said in all of them. Do you see Luke repeats that word, all. Moses and all the prophets, all the scriptures, and the focus of that unity was on 
himself. Concerning himself, it says. You see, there is a key that unlocks the diversity of the Bible and holds it together as one story, and that key is Jesus. The Bible is a unity because, in one way or another, it speaks of Jesus, and it tells the story of why he had to suffer and then enter his glory. In a way, you see, it doesn't actually matter that we weren't there to hear this lesson. I'm sure it would have been amazing, but the content of that lesson is not actually as important as the fact that it was possible. Because the fact that it was possible for Jesus to show these two that all the scriptures spoke of him, that is a promise. It is a guarantee when we read the Bible that we can read it as one book that speaks of Jesus. So one of the things that Easter should do is actually lead us to pay attention to the scriptures. The scriptures of Israel, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and to grow in understanding of that better. Actually, from the beginning, literally from the first Easter Sunday, understanding how the Old Testament fits together and speaks of Jesus has been a critical part of Christian discipleship. And so can I just ask you, friends, has it been a part of your discipleship? Have you been given the opportunity to and have you taken time to understand how the Old Testament works and how it speaks of Jesus? If you haven't, find a way. Come and talk to me. Put in a form saying, oh, I'd really like to do that. I mean, we, we can run courses on this. We can kind of connect you with a small group that can do this. It's part of the journey. It's a beautiful part of Christian discipleship. Okay, that's the first point. I took a bit long over it, but I got excited. The second, the second thing I think we can learn here is something about ourselves. And what this short story shows us, I think, is that we do not like the idea that the Messiah had to suffer. Jesus tells these two disciples that they are foolish and slow to believe what the prophets have spoken. Now, those are tough words. But the disciples clearly come to see that they were right, actually. For some reason, they had been very slow to understand. They'd been very resistant to this idea that the Messiah had to suffer, that it was necessary why is that? Because I think it is just a painful, difficult truth, this truth. It is a thought that we instinctively push back on. It's not too hard to think that the Messiah did suffer or that he chose to suffer. We can come at those things. We can come at the thought that the Messiah went through terrible things and endured them, that he did suffer. Because we, then we can admire his example and his resilience and his courage. And we can also admire the idea that he chose to suffer, that he bravely took a path of suffering. That's heroic, it's noble. But what about the thought that the Messiah had to suffer? That it was necessary 
That's harder. And it's harder because it means that the suffering itself was important. It wasn't just something he had to endure. It served a purpose. The suffering was itself part of the plan, part of the Messiah's work. And that is a harder thought because it means that the problem the Messiah came to solve is much more confronting than we like to think. For the disciples, the problem was Rome and the fact that Israel was poor and not free. They had hoped that Jesus would deliver Israel from this. And, And often, I think, we're really like them. We think the problem is something outside us. Perhaps it's the injustice in the world, the injustice of others. Perhaps it's troubles and difficulties that afflict us, sickness, money, family. And we hope that Jesus will be the one to deliver us, to bring us peace and prosperity. Now, it's not, of course, that Jesus doesn't care about all of this or that he makes no difference to these kinds of things. He does care and he does make a difference in a thousand ways. But none of those problems required him to suffer. No, the Messiah had to suffer because he came to solve a much bigger problem, a problem not outside us but within us, the problem of sin, of our rejection of and refusal of God and his ways. A problem that goes deep into our hearts, that corrupts our minds, that distorts our desires. Jesus came to redeem redeem Israel from an enemy that had conquered not just their land, and their armies, but their hearts, every human heart, in fact. And to do that, he had to suffer. Yes, he did so willingly, with courage that is deeply admirable. And yes, that suffering was also, in another sense, it was a grave injustice but it was also what had to happen because it was the way the Messiah made atonement for sin. It was the sacrifice that resolved the grievance between the holy God and us. The disciples in this story remind us, I think, that we instinctively resist this thought. We don't like it because it does humble us. It puts us to shame. The thought that we needed the Messiah's suffering. But don't resist it, friends. Don't resist it. Because it is our salvation. But the reason to say that lies in the last thing I want to draw our attention to. Don't worry, it's short. Which is something about Jesus. The thing about Jesus that I think this story draws our attention to is the way he speaks of what has happened, what is now happening to him. 
In verse 26, he says, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? The Messiah has entered his glory. That is what Jesus says the resurrection means. It's going to be completed with his ascension to the Father. We'll see that next week if you're here. But it has already begun with the resurrection. What does this mean? That the Messiah has entered his glory. Uh, We could say lots of things. I'm going to be content to say two, very briefly. First, it means that Jesus is the goal and end of all things. He is the one before whom every living thing will one day bow down in praise. With his resurrection from the dead, Jesus has entered his glory. Is the glory of the only Son of the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, who triumphed over death and sin and evil, to whom all praise and honour belongs. The final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, pictures the end of all things as the perfect praise of Jesus in his majestic splendour. And it says that that praise is also the fulfilment and highest joy of every creature. That's one thing it means that the Messiah has entered his glory. But the other thing it means is that his work is complete and perfect. Jesus has entered his glory because he has done what he, is, what he was given to do and it is finished. The redemption has been accomplished once and for all. His work is perfect, leaving nothing left to be completed. And that, let me finish by saying, that is profoundly, profoundly good news. Because it is the news that Jesus has been successful in dealing with our sins. He has dealt with our sins completely and perfectly. Nothing is left to do to deal with your sin because no debt remains outstanding. Every part of it was burnt up in the white-hot fire of the Messiah's suffering. Every failure and folly and dark deed has been paid for. He has entered his glory because his work was and remains forever utterly perfect. And that he has entered his glory means that his work cannot be undone. It is done. So trust him, friends. Trust him. It is humbling to accept that we need his suffering, but don't refuse it. Don't refuse it. Because beyond his suffering, he has entered into glory. And he invites all of us to rejoice in and rest in his perfect work. This is what Easter means. It's a truth sometimes we take a long time to really get 
that the Messiah's work to deal with sin was successful and it is finished because he has entered his glory and will abide in it forever. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.